You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Amity Schles is a senior fellow in economic history at the Council of Foreign Relations and a syndicated Bloomberg columnist. She's written for Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal. She's the author of The Greedy Hand. Her latest book is The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression. Thank you for speaking with me, Amity. Thank you. Amity, uh, tell me a little bit about your background. I'd like to know uh, how you would describe your education and how you came to do what you are currently doing. Well, I'm a journalist, uh, but I worked for many years at the Wall Street Journal. I was board member for economics there. And when you write about economics, you're always wondering where do all these rules come from, the rules that uh, shape the way we act in the economy. You know, uh, as a young reporter at the Journal, I would bump into these institutions like the SEC. What is that? And a little bell would go off at the SEC every time one company or someone bought 5% of another company's stock. And why was that? And, and really, um, news is a presentist, forward-looking business, so that we don't ask a lot of questions in news. And I never really figured out the answer to, to these things. But finally, I could see that they came from the 1930s. This is the period that shaped us, from the SEC, which is our securities law, to the Wagner Act, which is our labor law to deposit insurance, so much under discussion today, to the question of do we bail out people on homes, all from the 30s. So I thought I'd go back and take a look at that period. Uh, your, your vision of this period, I think, is a, uh, is a little bit different than what we are normally uh, given. Well, first, could you tell me, how would you describe your uh, politics, your political orientation? Well, I don't think that's so important, but I am, uh, look at the world economically, so I believe economic things are shape the rest. Uh, when I go overseas to look at an economy, I look at the economy and not the culture. Then culture comes later. So uh, I'm more tax-oriented, more monetarily oriented than a lot of journalists, and that makes me uh, temperamentally um, more conservative. We hear a lot of terms, depression, recession, recovery, and expansion. And I'm wondering if you could tell me exactly you know, give me the boilerplate definitions of each of those so we know what we're talking about. Well, the, an expansion is when the economy grows. A recovery is when it's growing or moving toward growth that is shrinking less. A recession, um, one definition, it's disputed, but I think it's still the best definition in most degree. A recession is two consecutive quarters of negative growth. Don't you love that phrase, negative growth, <laughs> i.e. shrinking? Uh-huh. And a depression is a bad recession. Let's just leave it at that. Or a recession, it's a word we opt for when we're feeling something more serious. Now, the, the term depression has changed as to where it fits in the language. If you go back and look right after World War II, you'll see people talking about the post-war depression. They meant what we would now call a recession. Hmm. Uh, there, there was no post-war depression in our modern language. There were recessions and downturns. And sometimes people talk about growth recessions when there's nominal growth, but it still feels like a recession. And that phrase was used in the early 60s, and it's used now sometimes, I think, accurately to apply to this, you know, this feeling that we've had the past year where a lot of measures have showed we weren't doing too well, including um, various interest rates, but also um, 
industries dead in the water, and yet we weren't technically in a recession by the two consecutive quarters definition. Now, your book, The Forgotten Man, starts with a, a, a really interesting, I think, a, a vision of a, what I think what you call a Dickensian America in New York. And I think that's a really, that's an interesting vision because we don't really normally associate those kind of uh, the Dickensian attributes to, to America. Well, are we like Dickens? <laughs> it, 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 we're talking about Charles Dickens. So yes. is it like Oliver Twist? That's, that's what we're asking. Are there poor houses? And is there this grinding poverty where even if you're virtuous, you're stuck in it? where you have your bowl and the mean man at the head of the hall won't give you more, and it's up to him. And when you look at the, the country in that period, you do see people um, year in, year out without food. At the beginning of The Forgotten Man, I describe a couple, I describe a boy who hangs himself because he doesn't want to ask for food from his family. He was reluctant to ask for food, I think was the New York Times headline. His name was William Troller. He lived in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. And in the book, I also describe another couple, another story of a couple who go to a little cottage on a lake, someone's summer camp, to starve because they don't want to ask for food. That's the 1930s. That's the America we don't know. Um, now we're having a bit of trouble, and we're thinking again a bit more about that. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it is typically American, actually, but it was the 1930s. Now, uh our vision of the uh, of the depression is we have a, a a standard narrative that we tell ourselves. We had the 1920s when everything was a little bit too loose and liberal. Their morals were loose, and stocks were high, and everybody was happy. Um, and then we had essentially a comeuppance, and the response to that from the current administration, then the Hoover administration was to essentially do nothing, uh, and then we have, he was replaced by Roosevelt, who did all this stuff, and all this stuff that he did essentially kind of brought us out of the Depression. I think that's, a, a, that's the, the narrative of the Depression as I know it. And, and I'm, you're, that's not your narrative, though, is it? The narrative of the Depression that we learned in school is just about roughly that. You capture it well. Um, economists know a bit different. They've, for the past 20, 30 years, they've really worked on it. We do know more about economies now than we do then. And they've come up with a different picture of what happened through data, mostly. That picture has not been translated into general history, into public knowledge. So what the Forgotten Man book does is take some of that knowledge from economists now, and also, by the way, from economists of the period who were never heard, and offers that to the reader. What really happened, as far as I can tell, is the following. The 20s were a great decade. The stock market went too high, but there was a lot of real growth. By real growth, we mean growth that involves productivity gains so that we can make something better and therefore sell more of it faster, or it's better and we sell more of it faster, and that increases overall the standard of living. The productivity gains are how economies grow over the longer term, and we saw a lot of those because they had, we have the Internet. That was one of our productivity gains. They had the electrification of the country. Just after World War I, the country wasn't electrified. It electrified itself. You see the introduction of the auto or the popularization, rather, of the auto and the introduction of electricity into homes, people, people it, it, it permeating the whole economy, um, the telephone 
sort of a new thing at that time. I think the telephone created the teenager and not the other way around. You know, it gave us a way to talk to each other a new way that had all sorts of social implications, especially for young people. All that happened in the 20s. So the 20s weren't fluffy. They were great. That's the first revision. There were certain aspects of the 20s that were negative, what was happening in Europe, and we weren't stopping it. The farm sector was already in a depression in the United States, but overall the 20s were great, and real growth was close to 4% a year. Nominal growth was only 3 but they were operating, by the way, in a deflation, and real growth was higher than nominal growth, which is backwards to what we think nowadays. Then um, the crash happened well. The market was very high. Some people don't even think it was too high, but it was high. And uh, what I saw when looking at the period was that crash need not have given you 10, 11 years of downturn. It need not have cast the stock market down for a 25-year period, which is what happened. As you know, it was not till the 50s that the Dow hit its 29 level. And so I look at the mistakes that were committed, and they were so numerous, first by Hoover and then by FDR, turned a credit crunch, a credit crisis, into a, a generational negative event. And long story short, the headline on that is government intervened too much. In 29, in 30, under Hoover, and of course, under FDR and the New Deal. Well, we all know that the uh, the Smoot-Hawley Act, they're creating the tar- tariff war, that, that's, I think, part of uh, that in that unusual name, is somewhat part of that, our, our narrative as being more of a problem causer than a problem solver. Do you th- see, is that still the, the view of economists? Oh, yes. And I, don't you love that name? That does sound Dickensian, Smoot Hawley. And if you've seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you'll remember that the uh, humorist and writer Ben Stein is has a little cameo in there where he teaches a high school class, he plays the high school teacher teaching the most boring topic possible, and that is the Smoot-Hawley tariff, and the kids are going crazy. They want to be cut in class, which is what the movie's about. And that's how we learned it in history, but Smoot-Hawley did have an effect, um, not only economic, but also it, political. Uh, you, Europe was in play then, the way Latin America is in play now, and what that tariff said, which is a GOP tariff, and Hoover signed it, even though he knew better, was we don't care about you, rest of the world. We care about us. And it was a very counterproductive signal at a time when things might still have gone right in Europe. So that's a component. Uh, tax increases are a component. Can you imagine, and this is still under Hoover, they got together and decided they wanted a 5% tax on autos. Really? Uh, we, we were taught now that you don't do taxes in a downturn. They put on not only increase in the income tax rate, um, many, many increases in taxes um, in, under Hoover towards the end, but also sort of gratuitous nasty things, like 5% tax on auto, telegraph tax. So they created this prosperity, the telegraph, the telephone, and now they were taxing it. Great, right? So that, uh, what else did they do? Uh, they spent the entire 30s trying to bring people down, class warfare. You committed the 20s, we will convict you for it. So their Greenspan, who is Andrew Mellon, the great figure of the 20s, Treasury Secretary, so huge that it was said that three presidents served under him, Mellon, he was on trial basically in the entire 30s. He was on trial basically until he died for stuff that was trivial. 
they vilified him. And likewise, there was a big business figure, Sam Insel of Chicago, who had electrified the city on trial in the 30s in the papers until more or less he died. And in various instances, juries and even judges exonerated these men, but in the court of public opinion, the Roosevelt administrations especially just wouldn't let up on them and just kept going after them and going on after them as if they were Ken Lay. And they weren't. They were not criminals. Um, so they were, say, say Skillingses. They were not. They were not like Enron guys. They were pretty good guys who gave us a lot of growth. So that, I, I argue, in The Forgotten Men, and the evidence is pretty strong for that, scared the market and made it not want to come back and therefore hurt everyone, including old ladies in tennis shoes. One good example of that is summer of 1937, Mellon, very old, he's just created the National Gallery, it's beginning to be built, it's being built, and he dies at his daughter's summer house on Long Island. The market crashes. Really? We get the depression within the depression. Why? Because the last star in the old firmament has just winked out. Greenspan can never come back. It can be never be good the way it was under Greenspan. It's that equivalent. So no matter how sour people may feel about Greenspan now or errors he may have committed, what we learned from the 30s is that vilifying these figures is counterproductive and that the same people who will vote for a politician who is going to attack the figure will also feel sad when the figure dies. There's a big ambivalence. So we need to show leadership and not waste our energy on that kind of stuff. Could you talk about the New Deal, which is another permanent part of our, our national narrative coming out of the Depression? And the New Deal is, is often seen as, you know, the, the solution to the Depression. And we just handed out this New Deal, and now everything was hunky-dory. Uh, did it, in fact, have that effect? And what are the most lasting parts of the New Deal? The New Deal made people feel better, and we all have a relation who worked maybe for the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, for the PWA, the WPA, at a time when the country needed infrastructure. This infrastructure was built in part by government. It was very, very exciting. Uh, did it bring recovery? No. What did it do? It distracted us from a depression that was meanwhile being perpetuated by bad policy in other areas. So what other areas? This, oh, well, this bringing down of just this anti-Wall Street rage that was allowed to flower in the period, the high taxes of, of Roosevelt, who raised taxes, of course, even way farther than Hoover ever contemplated, the... Um, National Recovery Administration. We have our NRA about guns. Mm -hmm. They had their NRA, which is National Recovery Administration, and they wrote this law that said basically federal government's going to manage the economy. It was kind of borrowed from Italy, corporatism, Mussolini, kind of borrowed from, you know, people's textbooks, had lots of fun economic principles embedded in it, such as we love the economy of scale, we think businesses should be in, in guilds, and then they can plan bigger bigger is better, um, maybe we want to have higher wages because it's more humane, and then that will increase spending. So there were all sorts of rules in this. There, were, You couldn't cut wages. That was super important. Um, you couldn't, under the NRA often, you couldn't do lots of stuff that a business would want to do in a struggling period. Um, and a uh, think tank then went ahead and wrote a paper a right-wing think tank went ahead and wrote a paper evaluating the NRA, a thousand-page paper. And it concluded that, on the whole, this NRA, this government management of the industrial economy, 
retarded recovery. And the name of that think tank was the Brookings Institution, which we don't think of today as a right-wing institution. So there was a general understanding that what Roosevelt was doing, his NRA and so on, were counterproductive even then. Now, uh, when you talk about the NRA, it brings to mind, in some ways, this recent bailout and in, in kind of the, the Paulson plan. I'm wondering if you could comment on the parallels uh, between what happened in history and what's happening right now and how our responses are different and how, what different kinds of responses are called by the different times. Well, the martial aspect is important. We're in war mode, right? Yes. Martial, M-A-R-T-I. Okay. We're in war mode now. We're going to make war on the downturn. And that was a big part of the NRA. Its emblem was the Blue Eagle. And you could almost imagine Paulson having a Blue Eagle on his breast <laughs> in the current, in the current uh, iteration. And I, that's good because we, we are lonely in downturns and we need leadership. But it's also troubling because this is not a war. This is a crash. Crashes happen all the time. Lots of economies recover. And to act as if it's the end of the world, I, uh, I found oh, exaggerating, notwithstanding, spreads um, data that were deeply perturbing to all of us. One of the things that you talk about is taxes, how um, both Hoover and Roosevelt raised taxes. Both of our current presidential candidates have uh, different tax plans. I'm wondering if you could compare and contrast the tax plans of the leading into the Great Depression with the tax plans that uh, we're currently looking at? Look, McCain uh, has a great tax plan. It's not like the tax plans in the New Deal, which were high taxes. His is low low taxes. Whether McCain would have the force to push those through, especially in the face of a recession where the budgetary numbers will look terrible, is the question that all people are asking. So you, you have to separate whether what someone's nominal plan is with what they would actually do. Um, McCain has the additional aspect to his candidacy that he's good at saying no when he feels like it. So he might be optimal because if you get, say, a Democratic Congress that wants to spend a lot, McCain is practiced at saying no and has staked his reputation saying no, and he might say no, and that might be the most important thing a president could do. But he's not exactly pro-growth in his temperament or emphasis. His plan is, but he's not. Um, when you get to Obama, he doesn't care about econ. I would not say he's a Marxist. He's something more troubling than a Marxist in a certain way. Marxists care a lot about econ. Their, their bread and butter is econ. Obama is a lawyer. That's different. Lawyers don't care about econ. They think, or their premise is, you can legislate recovery. They may say, I'm legislating reform, and that will lead to recovery, but really what they're doing is saying, I'm going to legislate recovery. That's their supposition, and you can't do that. It, it just doesn't work in reality. The, the um, pain can be lessened by laws. And laws can make a clean playing field so recovery can want to happen. The market players will want to play. But the private sector is really where recovery inheres. Um, so the tr problem with Obama is not that his plans are disruptive or disappointing to markets-oriented people, though they are, especially his cavalier attitude towards the capital gains tax, but that he doesn't care that much about econ. So if you have an all-democratic Washington, supposing you have House, Senate, White House, Democratic, which is conceivable. You have people who really have left-wing agendas in terms of the economy, and then Obama going along with that because he's got other stuff on his mind. That's the scenario that's problematic because he does want to raise taxes on the rich, um, and that's what they did in the New Deal, and it was counterproductive. He, um, the whole issue with Joe the plumber was that he didn't see that 
a lot of what happens in the U.S. is someone who's middle class moving into upper middle class or whatever, suddenly making 250000 and that is the person who is the job creator. You know, they, you know they always, I just saw the W movie, and they're always talking about President Bush where he said, I'm the decider. Well, Joe the plumber basically should say, I'm the creator, because jobs do come from those people whom the Obama plan would now tax more heavily. And that, that seems a little bit naive of him, we'll say, to, to just write it up that way. It sells well, but it's not reality, and plenty of Democrats know that as well. Um, one of the things we hear a lot about, too, is balancing the federal budget. Um, that was what uh, they called for at the beginning of the Great Depression, if I'm not mistaken. And um, then there's this idea of deficit spending. Are, are both approaches valid, and are, there are times when one is better than the other? Deficit spending is overrated. Uh, we saw that with our stimulus this spring. Some people saved it. They did, oh, bad people. They didn't, they didn't spend it. They saved it. In the theory, you know, the permanent income hypothesis of Milton Friedman, people are irrational, and they look forward and they say, oh, tax increases are coming. Recession might be coming. I'm going to save this. And, and then in, in um, sort of deficit mentality, you're saying, bad people, you should have spent it. Um, and that's, that's perverse. So uh, there you go. Um, I generally think the emphasis on the deficit in the name of raising taxes saying um, we want to narrow the deficit, but what we really want is to raise taxes, so we want to talk about the deficit is also counterproductive. Um, Sometimes you can cut taxes and widen the deficit and get growth to offset it. That's the whole supply-side revolution. It's real when they cut the cap gains rate in the United States. Routinely, Democrat or Republican, the Clinton administration cut the cap gains rate. You get more money because it unlocks capital. So this idea that you always have to raise taxes to get more revenues is not right. And uh, we've often raised to cut taxes and got more revenue or not had such high taxes and got more revenue. Uh, One virtue of the budget emphasis is that it stops people from wasting money. We see um, Senator Stevens was convicted this week, I think, Mm-hmm. They wa- bridge to nowhere. They wasted a lot of money, and at least if you put a, a Graham Rudman or some other budget belt on them, they won't be so free to waste money, the lawmakers. And that is a good analysis and valid. One of the things that was created out of the Great Depression, and you chronicled this in The Forgotten Man, was the Securities Exchange Commission. And we haven't heard a lot about them lately, even though it seems the security. Exchange Commission would be, I think, at the focal point of what's happening, uh, the, quote, Wall Street meltdown and the uh, necessitating a $700 billion bailout package. Well, contrary to what might be said, this is not the fault of the SEC. Uh, The SEC was created in the 30s because states basically regulated um, markets. They had so-called blue sky laws. Um, and uh, they said, we need a national system. There's too much trickery going on. There's too much false trading. And they created the SEC, which made the markets more transparent, and it was a good thing. So uh, the question now is, should we have a super SEC? Should we have an even stronger SEC? A lot of the stuff that happened with the mortgages was not in the SEC's territory. It was to be regulated by the CFTC, the Commodities Regulator, or it was sort of nowhere, derivatives land. So maybe we should have a comprehensive regulator. 
that regulates all these financial instruments, okay, that's not the end of the world if we do that. Now, one of the there's a lot of talk about the uh, Graham Bliley Leach Act, um, and I think that was around 1999, that essentially broke down all the walls that the that were put up after the Great Depression between the banks and the other financial instruments. And I'm wondering if you could comment on that. Do you think that that is indeed part of the problem? That may have been part of the problem. Um, if we used to have Glass-Steagall, mm-hmm. uh, which separated a little commercial bank from a big investment bank. So you saw Citibank, I guess Travelers, other other mergers and changes subsequent to the passage of this law in 1999. But there's certain rescues that have happened and couldn't have happened without the Graham-Bliley-Leach law. Um, bank of America jumps to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so people reached across lines and rescued each other. Um, thank goodness they were able to do that, and that is post post Graham. You know, Phil Graham is getting blamed for this. You know, um, so I don't vilify that law personally. Um, I do think we need some clarity on our legislation. Now, in August, you wrote an essay about housing. Uh, yes. which proves to be rather prescient. Uh, could you talk about that and, and uh, uh, about the the, uh, the idea of uh, the importance of property rights? That particular column was about how we place too much emphasis on housing mm-hmm. um, and say that housing, our recovery is about housing. A lot of the American economy is not about housing. So you want to ask yourself, um, why do we emphasize that? Why do we use it as a proxy for recovery? Uh, the, why is this economically? Because productivity is the gold standard of economic growth, and it's hard to get productivity gains by buying and selling houses. You're not making a better widget. Going forward, it seems like uh, the, the stimulus package, I think, doesn't seem to really do a lot. And I'm wondering if you think that as time unfolds and they actually start moving some of this money around, do you think that it's going to change the economy significantly? Or what kind of things do you think we could should do be doing to get our economy back on track? Just create a clear and favorable stage for investment. Um, one of the topics under proposal, for example, is to allow businesses to expense big purchases for that are investments, you know, capital equipment, first year. That should happen right away. If we cut the capital gains rate wildly right away and we um, lowered all taxes and somehow made the taxes seem permanent, these, these low rates, and we pass a new law, it could be restoring Glass-Steagall, or it could be weakening Graham-Leach-Bliley, or it could be strengthening Graham-Leach-Bliley, we'd have a lot of clarity and more money would want to come here. Because the U.S. is a pretty good economy relative to Europe and relative to Asia, and people want to come here even when we commit sins, such as bad bailouts, ignoring property rights. It's just relatively attractive. It's still a haven. So if you, that stuff, rather than the emphasis on bailouts, seems to me more productive. The more you bail out, the more you have to bail out. You bail and you bail. Tomorrow's bailout, the next day's bailout. We're to autos now. 
we perpetuate the bailout system by bailing out. It, it, so I was surprised that Congress doesn't have more pro-growth stuff on offer, and the Republicans are being so cowardly by by really um, not offering too much of it because they'll think they'll be laughed out of town. But it is the right remedy to say, okay, we're going to make sure that 2009 is possibility, big possibility for a growth year, and we're going to do that by ratcheting up the competitiveness of the U.S. through these measures. You don't hear it. Now, one of the things that you talk about, and I think that you mentioned earlier on when you were describing the things that helped get us out of the Great Depression, you talked about electrifying the country and, and, and all this like new technology. I, you know, I'd never had that perception of it that way, that essentially we had all this blossoming of new technologies across a variety of fronts. And I'm wondering if there are any like uh, places you see uh, new technological opportunities now that are, have parallels to the electrification, or as, as you said earlier, the Internet. The Internet was the parallel, and there'll be more like that. I mean, we can now light without money. I'm looking at a row of Halloween lights on my street, and the reason they're out there is because those new lights don't cost money compared to electrifying your house 20 years ago or, you know, in Europe or during World War II. We, we have lots of technology, what we know and what we haven't discovered yet, but we have to create the terms for that discovery. I'm thinking here of the late 70s when we'd been not in a depression, but in this gloomy period where a lot of technology was sitting on the shelf, maybe in the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, but not, not in every man's home. And they cut the capital gains rate radically, the so-called Steiger Amendment. This was before a Republican president. Um, and I, Jimmy Carter, I suppose, 78, signed it. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden we had such a thing again called venture capital. And among the people who were funded right after this were the people who would become Apple. It, it, there's, there's good stuff waiting to happen. It just has to be made possible. So... That's a very good antidote to a downturn. You don't hear lawmakers saying it much, though. We're in a very cowardly moment. I've been speaking with Amity Schles. Her latest book is The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression. Thank you for speaking with me, Amity. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.